All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and we are standing in the confessional corner looking at Article 11 in the Solid Declaration, God's eternal foreknowledge and election. And as we looked at last week, election is one of those things that has been muddled throughout all of history, and especially since the Reformation and Calvin. So we're going to look at the Solid Declaration this week and next week as we wind down our study of the Book of Concord this year in 2023. So we are on page 602 of the Concordia, the Reader's Edition of the Book of Concord. Among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession, there has not yet arisen any public dispute at all about the eternal election of God's children that has caused offense and has become widespread. Yet this article has been brought into very painful controversy in other places. Even among our theologians, there has been some agitation about it. Furthermore, the theologians did not always use the same expressions. By the help of divine grace, we want to prevent disagreement and separation in the future among our successors on account of this teaching. Therefore, as much as in us lies, we want to present an explanation of this teaching here. Then everyone may know the, what our unanimous doctrine, faith, and confession is also on this article. For the teaching about this article, if taught from and according to the pattern of the divine word, neither can nor should be regarded as useless or unnecessary, much less as offensive or harmful. For the Holy Scriptures, not just in one place or randomly, but in many places, thoroughly discuss and explain this teaching. Furthermore, we should not neglect or reject the teaching of the divine word because of abuse or misunderstanding. But for that very reason, the true meaning should and must be explained from the foundation of the scriptures in order to turn away all abuse and misunderstanding. All right, so as we have this introduction here, this has not been a major thing among Lutherans that has caused great splits. However, we have also seen this in the generations after the Reformation, and even the Missouri Synod has had its issues with what to do with the doctrine of election and predestination, and people not exactly saying things the same way each and every time. C.F.W. Walther even had to write a book on predestination so that he could firmly, from the scriptures, once again lay out the doctrine of predestination. That's available at CPH. Little plug there for them. Uh, from the collection of Walther's works. So I've not gotten through that one yet, but it is on my shelf to be read in more detail than I have in the past. Because this is a doctrine that needs to be understood properly. Because when you misunderstand it, you get crazy things like the once saved, always saved, as we talked about last week. All right, so we move into paragraph four. The plain summary and substance of this article are presented in the following points. First, the distinction between God's eternal foreknowledge and the eternal election of his children to eternal salvation is to be made carefully. Foreknowledge or prevision means that God sees and knows everything before it happens. This is called God's foreknowledge, which extends over all creatures, good and bad. In other words, he foresees and foreknows everything that is or will be, that is happening or will happen, whether it is good or bad. For all things, whether they are past or future, are clear and present before God. This is written in Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. In Isaiah 37, 28. 
I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. So God's foreknowledge means that he knows everything that is going to happen. Well, which is obvious because he's God. So he's going to know what happens. But as we will point out, as we pointed out last week, as we will point out again in our reading today, that does not make him the cause of all the evil in the world. Picking up in paragraph five, God's eternal election or predestination means God's preordaining to salvation. It does not include both the godly and the wicked, but only God's children who were elected and ordained to eternal life before the world's foundation was laid. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4, 5, he chose us in him. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. So again, election does not mean that there are some people who are elected to be saved and some people who are elected to be condemned. Election means that God has chosen the one way for salvation, and that is through faith in Jesus. That is him predestining us for adoption through Jesus Christ in Ephesians 1.5. Where we pick up in paragraph 6 and 7. God's foreknowledge foresees and foreknows what is evil, yet not in the sense that it is God's gracious will that evil should happen. Everything that the perverse, wicked will of the devil and of the people wants and desires to try to do, God sees and knows before it happens. His foreknowledge preserves order also in wicked acts or works, since a limit and measure is fixed by God for the evil that God does not will. He limits how far it will go, how long it should last, and when and how he will hinder punishment. God the Lord rules over all, Psalm 103, 19, so that it must flow to the glory of the divine name and to the salvation of his elect, and for that reason the godless must be astonished, 1 Corinthians 2, 7-8. The beginning and cause of evil is not God's foreknowledge, for God does not create and do evil, neither does he help or promote it. The cause of this evil is the wicked, perverse will of the devil and of the people, as it is written in Hosea 13, 9. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Also, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Psalm 5, 4. The Bible shows us that God cannot stand evil. It is why God sent Jesus into the world. It is why God sent the flood in Noah's day. It is why as we will see later on in our reading, that God shortens the evil days of the end so that the elect, those who are his children, don't fall away from the faith because they see all the horrible things that are happening. But God does not cause all these things to happen. God knows they're going to happen. God permits them, but he places limits on them. If you want a closer character study of that, read the first two chapters of the book of Job. We pick up in paragraph 8. God's eternal election does not just foresee and foreknow the salvation of the elect. From God's gracious will and pleasure in Christ Jesus, election is a cause that gains, works, helps, and promotes our salvation and what belongs to it. Our salvation is so founded on it that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. As it is written, in John 10, 28, no one will snatch my sheep out of my hand. And again, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 13, 48. This eternal election or ordination of God to eternal life must not be considered in God's secret, mysterious counsel in a simple-minded way. 
It is not as though election included nothing further or nothing more belonged to it, or nothing more were to be considered in it, than that God foresaw who and how many were to be saved, and who and how many were to be damned. Nor should we think that he only held sort of a military muster, such as, this one shall be saved, that one shall be damned, this one shall remain steadfast in the faith to the end, that one shall not remain steadfast. This is not something like Judgment Day as pictured in the Quran, where Allah flips a coin, and if it lands on heads, you get to go into paradise. If it lands on tails, you go to hell. Doesn't matter what you do in this life. Doesn't matter all the promises that are given for a holy life, for dying in a holy war, or whatever else. It still comes down to a coin flip on Judgment Day for Muslims. That's a capricious God. That is a God that we don't believe in. God did not go through and just randomly, like Santa's naughty and nice list, go, well, no, I'll let him slide. I'll, no, I'll let her She's not good enough. No, no, that's not the way that God does it. And it's not arbitrary either. That it's just, okay, we're going to take all the even-numbered Social Security numbers and send them to heaven. All the odd-numbered security Social Security numbers go to hell. I mean, that, that would be just stupid, right? God doesn't work like that. But God's election also must not be sought out in God's secret counsel. We can't just meditate on this and try to figure out, okay, what what hidden clues are back behind the text of scriptures? No, the concordists say, look at the words. The words spell it out very plainly, very often, what it means for God to elect someone to salvation. Picking up in paragraph 10. From this notion, many get and imagine strange, dangerous, and deadly thoughts. These cause and strengthen either self-confidence and lack of repentance or hopelessness and despair. So people fall into troublesome thoughts and say, before the foundation of the world was laid, Ephesians 1.4, God has foreknown his elect to salvation, and God's foreknowledge cannot fail or be hindered or changed by anyone, Isaiah 14.27, Romans 9.19. In view of this, if I am foreknown to salvation, nothing can hurt me. Even if I perform all sorts of shameful sins without repentance, have no regard for the word and sacraments, concern myself neither with repentance, faith, prayer, or godliness, I will and must still be saved, because God's foreknowledge must come to pass. If, however, I am not foreknown, nothing helps me anyway, even though I busy myself with the word, repent, believe, and so on, for I cannot hinder or change God's foreknowledge. In fact, even when godly hearts have repentance, faith, and good intentions to live by God's grace in a godly way, thoughts like these arise. If you are not foreknown from eternity to salvation, your every effort and entire labor is no help. This happens especially when they see their weakness and the examples of those who have not persevered but have fallen away again. Against this false delusion and thought, we must set up the following clear argument, which is sure and cannot fail. All scripture is inspired by God. It is not for self-confidence and lack of repentance, but for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. Also, everything in God's word has been written for us, not so that we should be driven to despair by it, but so that through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope, Romans 15.4. Therefore, there is no question that lack of repentance or despair should not in any way be caused or strengthened by the sound sense or right use of this teaching about God's eternal foreknowledge. The scriptures teach this doctrine only to direct us to the word, Ephesians 1.13, 1 
1 Corinthians 1 7, to encourage repentance, 2 Timothy 2 or 3 16, and godliness, Ephesians 1 14, John 15 3, and to strengthen faith and to assure us of our salvation, Ephesians 1 13 again, John 10 27 to 30, and 2 Thessalonians 2 13 to 14. What we need to combat these thoughts is the clear word of God. We not going around trying to figure out codes in the Bible to try to figure out if I am elect, if I am not elect. Do you have faith in Christ? Then yes, God has elected you to salvation. That is it. God has elected the one path for salvation. And if you have faith in Christ, you are on that path. Now, does that mean you can't fall away? Oh, no, please do not hear me say that because I am not one who preaches once saved, always saved, or that you cannot fall away from Christ, because you absolutely can. And some have, and some have good stories about how God brought them back, because they walked off the path, not because God shoved them off. They left. Jesus says, no one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. He does not say anywhere that we cannot jump out. All right, picking up in paragraph 13. If we want to think or speak correctly and usefully about eternal election or the predestination or preordination of God's children to eternal life, we should make it our custom to avoid speculating about God's bare, secret, concealed, mysterious foreknowledge. Instead, we should think or speak about how God's counsel, purpose, and ordination in Christ Jesus, who is the true book of life, is revealed to us through the word. In other words, the entire teaching about God's purpose, counsel, will, and ordination come, belongs to our redemption, call, justification, and salvation. They should be treated together the way Paul treats them and has explained this article in Romans 8, 29-30, and Ephesians 1, 4-10, and as Christ treated it in the parable of Matthew 22, 1-14, namely that God in his purpose and counsel ordained the following. Number one. The human race is truly redeemed and reconciled with God through Christ. By his faultless obedience, suffering, and death, Christ merited for us the righteousness that helps us before God and also merits eternal life. Number two, such merit and benefits of Christ are presented, offered, and distributed to us through his word and sacraments. Number three, by his Holy Spirit, through the word when it is preached, heard, and pondered, Christ will be effective and active in us, will convert hearts to true repentance, and preserve them in true faith. Number four, the Spirit will justify all those who in true repentance receive Christ by a true faith. He shall receive them into grace, the adoption of sons, and the inheritance of eternal life. Galatians 3.19 Number five, he will also sanctify and love those who are justified, as St. Paul says in Ephesians 1.4. Number six, he also will protect them in their great weakness against the devil, the world, and the flesh. He will rule and lead them in his ways, Deuteronomy 8, 6, raise them again when they stumble, Proverbs 4, 11 to 12, comfort them under the cross and in temptation, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5, and preserve them for eternal life, John 12, 25. Number seven, he will also strengthen, increase, and support to the end the good work that he has begun in them, Philippians 1, 6, if they cling to God's word, pray diligently, abide in God's goodness, and faithfully use the gifts they received. Matthew 25, 14-30. Finally, he will eternally save and glorify in life eternal those whom he has elected, called, and justified. God has prepared salvation not only in general in this council, purpose, and ordination. In grace, he has considered and chosen to salvation each and every one of the elect who are to be saved through Christ. 
He has also ordained that in the way just mentioned, he will, by his grace, gifts, and efficacy, bring them to salvation. He will aid, promote, strengthen, and preserve them. So all of this, again, is not by works of the law, not by doing the right things that you think God wants you to do, and God wants you to do the right things and the good things. But that is not where your election comes from. Your election comes from the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. And that is the only source of God's grace and mercy is through the Holy Spirit working in the word and the sacraments, bringing you Jesus. All right, we pick back up in paragraph 24 on page 605 now. All this, according to the scriptures, is included in the teaching about God's eternal election to adoption and eternal salvation, and is to be understood by it. It must never be excluded or omitted when we speak about God's purpose, predestination, election, and ordination to salvation. When our thoughts about this article are formed according to the scriptures in this way, we can simply adapt ourselves to it by God's grace. The following issue also belongs to the further explanation and saving use of the teaching about God's foreknowledge to salvation. Only the elect, whose names are written in the book of life, Revelation 21, 27, are saved. Therefore, how can we know, or why and how can we perceive who the elect are, and who can and should receive this teaching for comfort? This is a great question. If we can't absolutely be sure, who receives this? We go on. In this matter, we should not judge according to our reason or according to the law or from any outward appearance. Neither should we attempt to investigate the secret concealed depth of divine predestination. Instead, we should listen to God's revealed will. For he has made known to us the mystery of his will, Ephesians 1.9, and made it clear through Christ so that it might be preached, 2 Timothy 1.9. This is revealed to us in the way Paul says those whom he predestined, elected and foreordained, he also called, Romans 8.30. God does not call without means, but through the word. He has commanded that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. Luke 24, 47. St. Paul also testifies in a similar way when he writes, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. The king calls the guests that he wants to have at his son's wedding through the ministers he sends out. Matthew 22, 2-14. He sends some at the first, some at the second, some at the third, some at the sixth, ninth, and even the eleventh hour. Matthew 20, 3-6. If we want to think about our eternal election to salvation helpfully, we must in every way hold strongly and firmly to this truth. Just as the preaching of repentance is universal, so also the promise of the gospel is universal. That is, it belongs to all people. Who needs to hear this? Everyone because the Spirit works through the word proclaimed. And now we get into a list of commands that Christ gives. Repentance and forgiveness should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, Luke 24, 47. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, John three sixteen. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, John six fifty one. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Romans eleven thirty two. 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Romans 10.12 The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. Romans 3.22 For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. John 6.40 it is Christ's command that this promise of the gospel also should be offered to everyone in common to whom repentance is preached. Luke 24, 47, Mark 16, 15. We should not think of this call of God, which is made through the preaching of the word as a juggler's act, but we should know that God reveals his will by this call. He will work through the word and the people he calls so that they may be enlightened, converted, and saved. For the word by which we are called is a ministry of the Spirit, which gives the Spirit, or by which the Spirit is given. 2 Corinthians 3.8 It is the God's power unto salvation. Romans 1.16 The Holy Spirit wants to be effective through the word, and to strengthen and give power and ability. It is God's will that we should receive the word, believe it, and obey it. For this reason, the elect are described as follows. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. John 10, 27-28. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1, 11. They hear the gospel, believe in Christ, pray and give thanks, are sanctified in love, have hope, patience, and comfort under the cross. See Ephesians 1, 13 and Romans 8, 25. Though all this is very weak in them, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew 5, 6. So here we have the description of the elect, those who do strive, those who, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want to be righteous. They seek to be righteous because those who are elect are the ones who know that they are sick with their sin and that they need the great physician of both body and soul, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, 16 to 26, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, for the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Holy Scripture also testifies that God, who has called us, is faithful. So when he has begun the good work in us, he will also preserve it to the end and perfect it, if we ourselves do not turn from him, but firmly hold on to the work begun in us. He has promised his grace for this very purpose. See 1 Corinthians 1, 9, Philippians 1, 6, 1 Peter 5, 10, 2 Peter 3, 9, and Hebrews 3, 2. We should concern ourselves with this revealed will of God. We should follow and diligently think about it. Through the word by which he calls us, the Holy Spirit bestows grace, power, and ability for this purpose. We should not sound the depths of God's hidden predestination, as it is written in Luke 13, 23-24, where one asks, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Christ answers, Strive to enter through the narrow door. So Luther says, But you had better follow the order of the, this epistle of Romans. Worry first about Christ and the gospel, that you may recognize your sin and his grace. Then fight your sin, as the first eight chapters here have taught. Then, when you have reached the 8th chapter and are under the cross and suffering, this will teach you correctly of predestination in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and how comforting it is, from his preface to the epistle of Romans. Many are called, but few are chosen, Matthew twenty-two fourteen. 
This does not stem from the fact that God's call, which is made through the word, has the following meaning. It is not as though God said outwardly through the word, I indeed call all of you to my kingdom, everyone to whom I give my word. However, in my heart, I do not mean this for everyone, but only for a few. For it is my will that most of those whom I call through the word shall not be enlightened or converted. Instead, they shall be and remain damned, even though I myself explain differently to them through the word and the call. For this would be to assign contradictory wills to God. In this way, it would be taught that God, who is surely eternal truth, contradicts himself when, in fact, God punishes such wickedness in people, when a person states one purpose and thinks and means another in the heart, Psalm 5, 9, or Psalm 12, 2 to 4. By this notion, the necessary basis of comfort is completely made uncertain and void. For we are daily reminded and encouraged that we are a, that we are to learn and conclude what his will toward us is only from God's word, through which he works with us and calls us. We should believe and not doubt that it affirms to us the promises. For this reason, Christ causes the promise of the gospel not only to be offered in general, but he also seals it through the sacraments. He attaches them like seals of the promise, and by them he confirms the gospel to every believer in particular. This idea that God would have some to be saved and not others, that God, before the foundation of the world, decided who was going to heaven, who was going to hell, and then preaches about wanting everybody to be in heaven, um, that makes God a liar. And God cannot be a liar if he is the eternal truth. So we pick back up in paragraph 38. On this account, as the Augsburg Confession in Article 11 says, we also keep private absolution. We teach that it is God's command that we believe such absolution. We should regard it as sure that when we believe the word of absolution, we are truly reconciled to God as though he, we had heard a voice from heaven, John 12, 28 to 30, as the Apology also explains this article. This consolation would be entirely taken from us if we did not understand God's will toward us from the call that is made through the word and through the sacraments. So they go back to Augsburg Confession, Article 11, and the Apology on the same article about absolution as one of the sacraments that you must believe in, that you must receive the promise of the gospel in, because that is where Jesus comes to you for the forgiveness of your sins and for the betterment of your life. Not in a necessarily temporal way, but the betterment of your spiritual life as you grow closer to him through the sacraments, through hearing the word. The Holy Spirit certainly wants to be present with the word preached, heard, and considered, and he wants to be effective and work through it. Yet this foundation would be overthrown and taken from us if we misunderstand election. Therefore, the meaning is not at all like the one referred to above, that the elect are to be the sort of people who despise God's word, thrust it from them, blaspheme and persecute it, Matthew 22, 5-6, and Acts 13, 46. Or when they hear it, harden their hearts, Hebrews 4, verses 2 and 7, resist the Holy Spirit, Acts 7, 51, persevere in sins without repentance, Luke 14, 18-20, do not truly believe in Christ, Mark 16, 16, only make an outward show, Matthew 7, 22 and 22, 12, or seek other ways to righteousness and salvation outside of Christ, Romans 9, 31. Furthermore, God has ordained in his counsel that the Holy Spirit should call, enlighten, and convert the elect through the word, Romans 10, 17. He will justify and save all those who by true faith receive Christ. In the same way, he also determined in his counsel that he will harden, 
Romans 9, 18, reprobate and condemn those who are called through the word if they reject the word and resist the Holy Spirit, Acts 7, 51. This is true even though the Spirit wants to be effective and work in them through the word and preserve through the word. In this way, many are called, but few are chosen, Matthew 22, 14. Few receive the word and follow it. Most despise the word and will not come to the wedding, Matthew 22, 3-6. The cause of this contempt for the word is not God's foreknowledge, but the perverse human will. The human will rejects and perverts the means and instruments of the Holy Spirit, which God offers it through the call. It resists the Holy Spirit who wants to be effective and who wants to work through the word. As Christ says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Matthew 23, 37. Many hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They leave for a while, and in time of testing they fall away. Luke 8, 13. The reason is not that God was unwilling to grant grace for perseverance to those in whom he began a good work, for that is contrary to St. Paul in Philippians 1, 6. The reason is that they willfully turn away again from the Holy Commandment, grieve and embitter the Holy Spirit, involve themselves again in the world's filth, and redecorate their hearts as homes for the devil. For them, their last situation is worse than the first. See 2 Peter 2, 10-20, Ephesians 4, 30, Hebrews 10, 26, and Luke 11, 24-26. The Holy Spirit wants to work through the Word in everybody's heart, but if they refuse to listen, he is not going to force them. No one is going to be forced into heaven. No one is going to be bound against their will and dragged into heaven. That's not the way the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit works through invitation. So we're going to close this week with paragraphs 43 and 44. And then pick up next week with the excellent, glorious consolation that this article gives. But in summing up this week, this is how much of the mystery of predestination is revealed to us in God's Word. If we abide by this teaching and cling to it, it is a very useful, saving, consoling teaching. It establishes very effectively the article that we are justified and saved without any works and merits of ours, purely out of grace alone for Christ's sake. Before the time of the world, before we existed, yes, even before the foundation of the world was laid, when of course we could do nothing good, we were chosen by grace in Christ to salvation, according to God's purpose. Romans 9.11, 2 Timothy 1.9. Furthermore, all opinions and erroneous teachings about the powers of our natural will are overthrown by this. God in his counsel before the time of the world decided and ordained that he himself would produce and work in us by his Holy Spirit's power. Through the word, he would do everything that belongs to our conversion. So again, we have this great ending point here where, especially that last line, that God does everything necessary for our conversion. There is nothing that we do. There is nothing that we can do. Because all of this was predestined before Genesis 1-1. Before the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, God had already predestined the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you did or I did in that time beforehand because we did not exist. The world did not exist. There was just God. And in that, and in him, we place our comfort. We derive comfort from it because it means that it isn't up to us. It isn't whether we are going to pass or fail the test. It is that we persevere and endure the test. 
It is that the Holy Spirit is there with us throughout the test, urging us on to follow after the voice of our shepherd. All right, that is it for this week as we look at the article of God's foreknowledge and election. Again, as I said, next week we finish it up, paragraphs 45 to 96, looking at the excellent, glorious consolation that we have in God's eternal election to salvation. So I encourage you to be here for that next time. And also, be here for the Digging Deepers into Revelation. We are getting into the meaty parts that everyone wants to talk about in especially chapters 13 and 14 of Revelation. If you're a pro wrestling fan, be here for the Pro Wrestling America broadcast, the great fantasy wrestling league, if I say so myself. And also the moments of meditation that are here on a monthly basis. Avail yourself of all the things that we have, especially as we are in this Advent season. Avail yourself of being able to hear the Word of God more often. If your congregation has midweek services, make yourself available for them. Be there and hear the Word of your Savior. Let the Holy Spirit come to you in the Word and help to preserve you in the one true faith so that you may wrestle with the theologies around you during this Advent season. Amen.